Okay, let me uh, just remind you of things to come. There will not be Bible class this Thursday night. Okay, so sometimes people forget. Those who are live streamers tend not to pay attention to announcements all the time. But when you try to live stream on Thursday night, it won't work. Okay, we will be with our families enjoying the <clears throat> aftershock of our Thanksgiving lunch. Right? Okay. Uh, then on December the 15th, Sunday, December the 15th, we'll have our Christmas luncheon and also during the service that day, a children's dedication for those who are approximately six-ish and, <clears throat> and under. The luncheon will be uh, immediately following the morning service. Also, uh, on the Greece and Israel trips, the, the, we're going to make a decision on whether they go at the end of January. But we really need you, if you're even considering it and you think you're somewhat serious to register, we need some significant headcounts by the 1st of December, if, if at all possible. So I uh, need to move off the dime on that. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have a salvation that is based on grace, that it is free that Jesus Christ paid the price, and all that is required of us is to believe, to trust, that he has the value. His death is what has merit. Our faith is simply our response. It is not something that is meritorious. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin, and we rejoice in that, that, that we fail, and we fail many times. Sometimes we fail egregiously. But you forgive us when we confess sin. Our sin is paid for. That's not the issue. Father, we thank you for this time we have to fellowship with you in your word and as a result to fellowship with one another. And now, Father, as we continue the study and begin to look at some controversial questions, some important questions, that you will help us to understand them and understand your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me this evening to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we find ourselves going back to the passage that begins to talk about uh, David's discipline from the Lord because of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his conspiracy to have Uriah the Hittite murdered and to cover up the pregnancy and to cover up uh, cover up the the murder. So tonight what I want to do is to remind us of what those stages of discipline were that were laid out in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and to then look into that first, uh, first stage of the fourfold divine discipline on David, which is the death of the child that uh, Bathsheba was now carrying, and when she gave birth to that child, then the Lord said that he would take that child's life. That was the first of four stages of divine discipline. And it is a, 
Uh, it is the central passage because of the way David responds to the death of the child, where he says, I cannot go to him, but I mean, uh, he cannot come back to me, but I will go to him, that this is a central passage in understanding and answering the question, what happens when an infant dies, when a baby dies, when someone, a child very young dies, when someone who does not have the ability to understand and comprehend uh, the existence of God and the truth of the gospel uh, What because of some uh, mental defect. What happens to them? And then there are some additional questions that people always, always ask. So we're going to get into that. And I ended up with about 16 pages of notes, and I wanted this to be just a one-shot deal. So there really is a lot here because... What you find is in almost any area of Bible study or theology, you can go find a dozen experts that all take different views, and it confuses the heck out of everybody, and why. And all of that's really influenced by different theological systems that are then read into the text, rather than really paying attention to a lot of the details that are going on in the text itself. So that's got to be our starting point in looking at just exactly what happens in this episode, just exactly what is said and what is not said, and paying attention to the tone, paying attention to the mood of what is transpiring in this uh, in this particular episode. So it's it's very good and it's very helpful uh, for us. So just to orient you back to what we've done, we looked at David's or Nathan's confrontation with David, that he presented a parable. And in that parable, he talks about the fact that there is a rich man who has many, many flocks, and there is a poor man who has one poor little ewe lamb, and he loves that ewe lamb. And so guests come to stay with the rich man, and he doesn't want to kill and eat any of his sheep, so he goes and he steals the sheep that belongs to the poor man and feeds that sheep to the uh, to his guests and David then is going to react and <clears throat> state what the punishment should be for that rich man and that basically becomes the punishment the outline of the punishment for him so we reviewed that confrontation David's response we look then at his eventual con- well he confesses during that episode but then we see that Later, he reflects upon what had been transpiring in his mind, his own mental attitude, the guilt that he realized because he had committed two capital crimes. He was guilty of uh, uh, breaking the Mosaic law and guilty of committing crimes that demanded the death penalty. And so he truly feared for his life, that if God had lowered the boom on him as he should have by all rights, then David would not have survived. But God, in his grace... When David confessed his sin, God forgave him. That doesn't mean that the discipline was removed. And I think that is an important thing that many Americans and American evangelicals cannot get their mental fingers around. They think forgiveness means no consequences. Sometimes in God's grace, it means that. But what we see here is forgiveness is complete and total, but there are reduced consequences. So we'll look at that. And Psalm 51 is we studied to seek David's mental attitude, his request, 
his confession of sin, and that's laid out there. No forgiveness is announced yet in Psalm 51. And that was what we looked at for a couple of weeks, David crying out to God for forgiveness, praying to God for forgiveness of sin, and then expressing a vow at the end of that psalm to teach people about confession and forgiveness. And that's actually what happens. That was our sixth point we covered last time, that David praised God for the joy, for his joy of forgiveness. Psalm 32, 1 through 11 expresses the a joy of David's realized forgiveness. So what we're going to do tonight is look at, first of all, what's taught in the passage, just uh, review the discipline, and then go through the details of the birth and the death of the infant and David's response. So that will be looking at the what exactly is said, stated, taught in the passage, and then second, to apply that to these very personal, in some cases, very important questions as we have people, and you never know, I don't know, that there may be people in the congregation who have had a child die. Uh, There may have friends, they may have family members, you may know people who have had a child die, and this gives tremendous comfort for people to know that God's grace is sufficient. He is He is in charge, and look at what the biblical evidence for that is. And answering questions like, what is the age of accountability? A lot of people don't know what that is. It's not a specific age, but what is it? Why is it important? Second, what do do we mean by uh, this phrase, reaching reaching God consciousness? What exactly is that? And then a question that has come up, and I always get in trouble because you cannot study this topic at all when you're studying about infants and salvation and be emotion. You got to just disengage your subjectivity and your emotions because we all think sweet little kids are innocent and we are all born dead in our trespasses and sins and worthy of eternal condemnation. And anything better than that is the grace of God. And whether a person becomes a believer or not, the very fact that they're allowed to live and enjoy this life and experience some of the common blessings of God to everybody is just the grace of God. And so we have to remember that we are not entitled to anything. It is God's grace that has provided it all for us. So we'll look at that if we, if we have time. So looking back in chapter 12, verse 5, we see the reaction that David has to the parable about the a uh, wealthy man who has all of his sheep and a poor man whose uh, ewe lamb is stolen from him. And at the end, David's anger is greatly aroused against the man. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fold for, fourfold for the lamb. That outlines his what will be his divine discipline. God will give provide four stages of divine discipline on on David and he say, says because he did this thing because he had he had no pity and so what David will experience is first of all the death of the child Bathsheba at this point is pregnant she's going to give birth to a son and <clears throat> that child will almost immediately die it will take 7 days, and then that child will die. 
The next stage is something that seems even even more horrible, is the fracture of David's own family. It is as if his own sins are brought back upon him. For he has a daughter named Tamar, who is the full sister of Absalom. And she is a half-sister to another son named Amnon. And Amnon will rape her. This is, some people have thought that David raped Bathsheba. I don't think so. I don't think there's any evidence of that. But certainly there's uh, his position of power and prestige would have uh, come into play in seducing her. But this is much, much worse. And Amnon rapes Tamar. And then uh, her brother Absalom will bide his time and he will wait two years and then he will... Do the same thing David did. David didn't directly murder Uriah, but he got, he developed a conspiracy, a group of people, which primarily was was Joab, who would use uh, a military situation to cause the death of Uriah. And so, what Absalom does is he gets some of his men together and he tells them that they need to uh, go to this uh, <clears throat> festival with Amnon. And to kill him, and so there's that conspiracy to commit murder, which uh, resembles David's conspiracy to have Uriah killed. So that's the second, uh, or that's that's the uh, third. The first is the death of the baby. The second is uh, the rape of Tamar. The third is the death of Amnon, and then the fourth is Absalom's rebellion against David. In this situation, after Absalom uh, has Amnon killed festers in their relationship. He is away from the capital uh, for a lengthy time, and David finally brings him back, but he really doesn't talk to him, doesn't spend time with him. And um, Absalom gets involved in a conspiracy to overthrow David. David has to flee for his life with uh, with his cabinet, with his family, and David flees. And then Absalom eventually is going to be be killed uh, by Joab and his men. And so that's the fourth area of divine discipline. It's just tragic what David goes through, all as a result of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and conspiracy to commit commit murder. What we see in this is uh, that that God responds to us in forgiveness with one of three three one of three ways. First of all, sometimes God forgives us and we still feel the full force of divine discipline. Just because God forgives us doesn't mean he will necessarily diminish the discipline. That's not what happened in David's case. Second is that God forgives the sin and lessens the discipline. If it had been full force, David would have been executed for capital crime. In this case, it's lessened, but it is still pretty severe. Sometimes it's lessened, and it's not so severe. God, in his grace, knows exactly how, uh, how intense the discipline should be. And then third, sometimes, and frequently, God forgives us, and we don't realize any of the consequences, any of the discipline for that sin. And that happens to us a tremendous amount, so that sometimes we just develop a rather lax view of our, of our sin. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, explains the 
overall situation in terms of the discipline. The Lord said to David, I will raise up adversity against you and your house. So his family is going to feel the brunt of the discipline for his sin. Not only does he suffer, but his whole family does. It's suffering It's suffering uh, through association. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, so it's, in, it's his own children, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And that will happen rather graphically with Absalom when he will take David's uh, wives and concubines and go up and publicly have intercourse with them on the roof of the palace. This was a a very pagan uh, type of thing to do in the ancient world where a new king would do that to show that he now has the power and the authority over everything that the former king had. So it is a profound and graphic act of act of rebellion. So this sets the stage and God announces that he is going to take the life of this of the firstborn. It's interesting when we look to uh, verse verse 15. It's broken in half. After the end of the confrontation of Nathan with David, David confesses his sin in verse verse 13, the first part of verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan, as a spokesperson for the Lord, tells David, the Lord has also put away your sins, you shall not die. However, in verse 14, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So that's a clear statement that this baby will die and God will take, take its life. But David recognizes the grace of God. Perhaps David is thinking about, um, perhaps David is thinking about Abraham. God was told Abraham to take his son Isaac up to the mountains of Moriah and there to sacrifice him to the Lord. And at the last minute, God stayed his hand in grace. Uh, Perhaps David is thinking about other instances that had happened where God uh, was gracious in holding back in divine discipline. And so David responds to to the Lord in in, in prayer, and I want you to pay attention what happens from the second part of verse fifteen on. And the child, so the child is born, and we're told, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. This happens almost immediately after the child is born. But I want you to notice that Bathsheba is not identified by name. She's identified as the wife of Uriah. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, when we're given the genealogical background for the Lord Jesus, tracing the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, and all of these genealogies are designed to trace that seed from, from Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus. So we're told here that uh, we've told previously about Ruth and Boaz, who are the uh, grandparents of Jesse. Jesse begot David's father. Da- Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Again, Bathsheba is not 
given listed by name. What is going on here? Now, if you're a snowflake living in postmodern America, what you're going to do is you're going to say, oh, this just shows how terrible and mean God is because God just is publicly, continues to publicly embarrass her. And how can you say that God forgave her? Well, that's because you're looking at it like a screwball. God is reminding us time and time again that David and Bathsheba were not worthy of this great blessing to be included in the line of the Savior. And it is to remind us of God's grace and his goodness. There are four women that are mentioned in that genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And the focal point here is to show that God includes these, these women, Rahab, the prostitute is listed before this. She's David's great-great-great-grandmother. And so you have Rahab precedes Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's mentioned. And then Bathsheba. And these women who, uh, if you were inventing a religion, you wouldn't include women like this in human viewpoint in the line of your hero. You would want to include women who seem to fit the model of great heroines. So that's the point. It's to remind us of God's grace, to constantly remind us that those who were sinners were graciously included in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can't look at it from the line of a rebellious sinner. You have to look at it in terms of what God is doing to exhibit his grace and his goodness and his kindness. So we see that the child is born, and just within... Within minutes or hours, the child becomes fatally ill, but does not die. But I want you to pay attention to what's going on with David. Let's pay attention. What is the mood? The child is ill. Any of you who have been parents and you have a child, that baby gets sick, you're just worried to death. This is, this is critical. This is very, very personal. You, you, you're very concerned. And David knows that God has given a death sentence to this child. But David does not sit back in some sort of impersonal fatalism and say, oh, well, that baby's dying and that's all my fault. I'm going to go have a pity party because and, and, there's nothing I can do about this. That, that's not David at all. David comes and he goes to the Lord in prayer, in profound prayer. And what we see here is David is going to exhibit great mourning as a Jew would at the time of death. And so he is fasting and he is praying. Now, I've taught this many times in the past that today we have all these little fake fasts that Christians get involved in thinking somehow that's going to impress God, but actually they're thinking it's going to impress everybody else. I'm really hard on this because they don't understand what a fast really meant in the, in the Bible. It meant that you were going to put all of your attention, all of your energy in your prayer, and you weren't going to be distracted by having to prepare meals. Even if you're the king, you know, eating was not, oh, I'm going to go get a, something out of the refrigerator, stick it in the microwave. Five minutes later, I've got a, a meal, and I can sit down, and then I'll go back to praying. We go through a fast food. Somebody can bring us things. In the ancient world, this was very time-consuming. And so fasting was that you're just not going to get involved in all of that energy and distraction 
and you're going to put your attention on prayer because what you're praying about is more important than taking care of my everyday needs and carrying out my everyday activities. And when you see 99.9% of the people carrying out some kind of fast, I even hear these things, well, we're just going to have a carbohydrate fast today, or we're going to have a dessert fast today, or we're going to have a whatever it is. It's, they're just not going to have some uh, something that they usually have as if giving something up for God is somehow going to really impress God with your spirituality. It is a matter of, of priority here where all of the attention is going to be on the Lord. And so David goes in, and this is in the palace. I don't think it, because of what happens at the end, I don't think he's going before the Ark of the Covenant because at the end when he's still fasting and praying and the uh, elders, the the men the, that are called his servants there, this is really his cabinet. He, he's a king and he has... Uh, his generals, and he has others who are in charge of the economy, in char- charge of the treasury, in charge of all the different administrative aspects. That's the term that is used, uh, the elders of the house. That describes those kinds of men. And when they c- they come to him to inform him about the death of the child, and if he were in the temple praying before the Ark of the Covenant, they wouldn't be able to get in there. So this is in the palace. He goes to an area where he has privacy, and he lays down all night in prayer, and he is not sleeping. So he is going for this period of seven. He's he's weeping. He is not eating. uh, He's not changing his clothes. He's not going in and taking a shower. He is excluding everything except the focus on prayer to plead with God for the life of this child. So when he does this, we're told in verse 17 that the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up. from. They began to plead with him not to do this, but he won't do it. He won't listen to them. He tells them to go away. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do any of these things at all. And so they continue to observe this intense grief on his part. And we can't exaggerate this enough, as intense as this grief is. And then we come to verse 18. Then on the seventh day it came to pass. Now why is it important for us to know that this is on the seventh day? Because it's on the eighth day that the son would be circumcised. That, would, that he would become a part of the covenant with Abraham. Now, you see, one of the theological positions on, on infant salvation is that you have infant baptism that's built falsely off of the analogy with, with um, circumcision. And so you bring the child to church, and there's this infant baptism ceremony. It doesn't mean he's saved, but what it is is that on the basis of the faith of the parents, this child, if he dies before the age of accountability, is going to go to heaven. This is based on a doctrine that confuses Israel with the church, and it is completely fallacious. But um, under the Mosaic law, the 
the son does not become a child of the covenant, does not enter in until that, that circumcision takes place. So that tells you that there's no automatic salvation here uh, on the basis of the fact that he would have been part of the covenant with Moses by virtue of his circumcision. And that's why we're told this, is that that doesn't, doesn't apply here. And so you can't come along and say that, okay, that's why this child is saved, and that those who are circumcised would be saved and those that aren't circumcised would not be saved. And what we'll see is that you have a number of different positions that are out there by theologians, depending on their, their theological background, that some will say that, well, elect babies go to heaven and non-elect babies don't go to heaven. There are others who will say those who were baptized as an infant will go to heaven and those who weren't will not go to heaven. And uh, it's, just, it's just crazy, the, the level of confusion based on various theological systems. So that's why we're told that this is on the seventh day. It's before the circumcision uh, would have come to pass. And the servants of David, that is those who are mentioned in the previous verse as the elders of the house, the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They've been watching him as far as they're concerned. It looks like he's been having a meltdown for the last week. He is just, he's weeping and wailing and all of the uh, demonstrative emotions that went along with mourning in, in the Middle East. And so now they're afraid to tell him, and, and, and we're told their rationale, what they were thinking. They said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to us. How can, the, how can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do us harm. The point here is the mood here is that this man is so deeply in grief and in sorrow and sadness at the illness of this child that nobody wants to come near him because they're afraid that he will do them harm or maybe do bodily harm to himself. But David sees that they are off whispering amongst themselves. And David's pretty smart, and he, re- he knows what is going on. So in verse 19 we read, When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. And so he says to them, is the child dead? He just goes straight to the point, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. So David arose, and he continued to beat himself up and to scream and yell and mourn and grieve. Is that what happened? No. Look, this is a remarkable transformation. And they know it. They see this, and they they can't believe that he doesn't continue or even get worse in his meltdown. So David arose from the ground, washed, and anointed himself. This is the common use of the word anointing. So many people, when they look at anointing in the Scripture, they always think it's some big spiritual thing. Uh, Just like when they look at uh, the end of James, when James says if someone is sick, let him uh, anoint himself. And so they think you need to go get oil and anoint him, and it's some kind of spiritual thing, and that's hogwash. It's a word in the, Hebrew, in the Greek there that refers to every day. If you're living in the dry climate of the Middle East and you're not applying lotions and oil to your skin, you're going to dry up. And the application on a daily basis of those lotions and those oils was called anointing. And every day, anybody who got up and they took a little uh, bath 
and they applied lotions to their and oils to their hair and to their skin. They were anointing themselves. But David is so focused on expressing his prayer to God to save the infant that he's not taking a bath every day. He's not anointing himself every day. He's not putting on his deodorant and his aftershave, and he's not combing his hair, making sure he doesn't have bed head and all these other things. He is focused on prayer. And now what does he do? He hears that the child is dead, and rather than continuing or increasing his grief, he immediately goes and he takes a bath and he cleans himself up and he uh, puts oils and lotions on his skin, on his face, his hair, puts on uh, clean clothes, and he goes into the temple. See, he ha- he's been in the palace. He hasn't been in the temple before the ark, and he goes into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Now, we've done a study of this word in the past, and one of the most significant meanings of the word worship is when it is used as a synonym for singing hymns before the Lord, for making music, for the writing even of hymns. And so David is going in, and he is going to uh, sing before the Lord, not a lament psalm, but a thanksgiving psalm and a psalm of joy. So he goes in and he worships the Lord in the temple. Then he goes to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. He hasn't eaten in a week, so he probably had a tremendous appetite. And he is sitting there, and he is uh, eating all of this food. And uh, I don't know if you've ever gone a week without food. The most I ever went without food on a fast, on a... On a um, uh, outward bound type of adventure with Honey Rock Camp back uh, about 40 years ago. After being without food for a few days, you're not really hungry, but you sit down and after about the third bite, uh, you're looking at, bring me that fourth plate of pancakes and an extra dozen eggs. Your appetite comes back with a vengeance. So David would be sitting there and really eating. They're just amazed at this. And then we read, then his servant said to him, what is this you have done? You fasted, you wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you, you, you arose and you fed your face like you hadn't seen food in months. That's the idea. They are stunned. What a transformation. Here's this man who was grieving intensely. And when the child dies, he, it stops. He goes and cleans himself up. He is exhibiting a measure of joy and tranquility and contentment, not joy in the sense that he's laughing and telling jokes and, and all of that, but that he is, uh, he is content. He is no longer grieving. He's no longer upset. One uh, pretty good commentary on Second Samuel says, David's extreme outpouring of his soul in order to save his infant son fails. But instead of falling apart into even greater emotional outbursts of grief or hatred of God, he appears outwardly serene, joyful, and at peace with God. This is a remarkable transformation. Now, what is it that brought about this transformation? He explains in verse 22. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted, I wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? 
So he believes God can answer his prayers. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, David shouldn't have prayed. He already knew what God said was going to happen. There's no condemnation of David for in here for praying. We don't know what God is going to do. God may tell us something is going to happen just to see if we'll continue to pray or not. And so that's what uh, David continued to pray, but God had was not going to change, change and let the child live. So David then says in verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I want you to notice the personal pronouns here. David is saying, he is dead. Why should I fast? This is a very personal statement. He says, can I bring him back again? No, that's a rhetorical question. David knows he can't bring him back. Then David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is there's a couple of different views that you may run into at one time or another. I ran into these when I was in seminary. One of these is articulated by uh, Eugene Merrill, who's a very good professor of Old Testament at Dallas Seminary. He's retired now, but he wrote the commentary on Deuteronomy and the commentary on First and Second Samuel that is in the uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary. And yet when he explains this verse, he says, well, what David is saying here is... Uh, he went to the grave, and uh, he can't come back, and I'll eventually go to the grave. Then I've heard, I heard a number of seminary professors say that's what is going on here. One, a version of this is uh, that I heard from another professor as well. The Old Testament, all they had was this understanding of Sheol, which is, which is a synonym in places for the grave, which is what, what Merrill is talking about. And all David is saying is, he can't come back from Sheol, and I'll go to him. Doesn't that encourage you? I'd start weeping again. See, the tone here is one of confidence, a complete shift away from the, the sorrow and the grief to one of contentment and tranquility. Something causes that shift, and it's because David knows something. And what he knows isn't some sort of a fatalism that, well, you know, he can't come back to life, but I'll eventually die, so that's it. Does that encourage you? That's not an encouraging statement to think, well, he's, he's dead in the grave, and I'll eventually go there too. This is a very personal statement. It doesn't mention the grave. It doesn't mention Sheol. It is personal. I will go to him. I, it doesn't say I will go to where he is. It says I will go to him. That's personal. David sees that in the next life he's going to have a personal relationship with this infant who will come back as an adult to be able to have that personal relationship with David. So he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This is very personal. It is not, well, he's going to be in the grave, and I can't go there. Uh, I mean, he can't come back, but I can go there. That's not what's going on here at all. But that has become very, very popular in interpreting this. And then they'll conclude that, well, you see, you can't go to this passage at all to try to come up with any understanding of what happens when a child dies. And I strongly disagree with that. The other thing that we see here is how David, David's grief here is handled. 
he recognizes that this infant is now, uh, he doesn't have an understanding. He's not going to be face-to-face with the Lord, which is what we would have today, but he is in the place, uh, the compartment of paradise in Sheol. And people will say, you'll hear scholars say this, well, how would he know that? We don't have that anywhere in the Old Testament. Well, if you take out your Bibles and you look in Genesis chapter 22, and you read about uh, Abraham and Isaac, you don't read any mention whatsoever that that Abraham knew that if he killed uh, Isaac, that God would bring Isaac back to life. But if you read in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he understood that God would give Isaac back to him alive. He understood resurrection. Well, where did he get it? There's no teaching about the resurrection from the dead anywhere prior to Genesis 22. These patriarchs and David understood and knew things that are not recorded for us in the sense that we're not told everything that God told Adam and Eve in the garden. We're not told everything that they knew, but they knew more than a lot more than what we see uh, in those, those episodes. So David is is fully aware that this child is in the afterlife. He is a it's conscious, and he is with he is in a place uh, that that later is called uh, paradise. Now I want to compare and contrast this with three other times that David grieves, so that you can see see the evidence here. First of all, in Second Samuel three, Second Samuel three, we have the recording of the death of Abner. You remember Abner. Abner was the uh, general with Saul. He's Saul's uncle. He was very close. And after Saul died, uh, there's this attempt to uh, have a revolt against David led by Abner to establish the house of Saul. And Joab, who is, he's basically a mafia hitman type of individual, and Joab recognizes the danger that Abner presents to, to the unity of the nation and to David. And so he is going to basically assassinate uh, Abner. And so afterwards, we see David's response in 2 Samuel 3.31. Then David said, said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, see, they're sort of joyful that Abner has been killed. And David straightens them out right away. And he says, tear your clothes Gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. But he doesn't say anything about seeing Abner in the afterlife. We see his grief. It's very different from what happens when this child dies. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, which we'll get into in the, probably after the first of the year, 2 Samuel chapter 13, we read about his response to the death of his son Amnon. Amnon is uh, basically murdered via conspiracy by Absalom. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying that Absalom has killed all the king's son because they were all the king's other king's sons were having this party. That's where... Absalom sent his hit team to go in and kill uh, Amnon. And so the rumor got back to David that not just Amnon's dead, they're all dead. And so the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. So we see this grief like David was exhibiting prior to the death of, of, of the baby. 
But then word comes that, no, 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 all the other king's sons are okay. It's just Amnon that was killed. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But we don't see David saying, well, I'm going to go see, see him. There's this difference with these other sons. He has confidence that his, that baby is going to paradise. He's not so sure about these other sons and what their eternal destiny is. And the same thing happens when he hears about Absalom. He hear, gets word that Absalom has been, has been killed, and we read, Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, I will, come, I will see you in the future. Oh, wait a minute, he didn't say that, did he? See, he's not sure about Absalom. He's not sure where these others were going to spend the future in, in a future life, but he knew he had confidence. That's what changes his whole mental attitude. He has this confidence uh, about that child. So we go to this passage, and I think we see solid evidence that David' whole attitude changes because he knows that this child is going to be in paradise. So let me tell you what some of these other views are. Uh, I've mentioned these already, but just there's three views that I'm aware of or some variation of all of these. Um, one is that David is just saying that this child died, he can't be restored to life, but I will die. That's just not real uplifting. It's not something that's going to give you a lot of confidence. The variation on that is this child is in Sheol and cannot return, but when I die, I'll go to Sheol. Well, again, that's, not, that's pretty ambiguous, and it's not something that's going to change your whole attitude. And the third view is the one that I've stated is that David realizes that the child is in paradise and he will join him there. Now, when it comes to the views on infant salvation, one view is that in infant baptism, an infant becomes a, a, a child of the covenant in covenant theology. And a variation of this is that because the parents are believers on the basis of their faith, this child now enters into a covenant relationship with the church, and if the child dies before the age of accountability, then that child will go to heaven. But the implication is that those who weren't baptized as infants, well, it's not so sure. A second view, and this is what you'll find with a number of Calvinists, is that God elects some infants to salvation and others he does not elect to salvation. So not all infants go to heaven. You won't know if, if you have a child that dies, you won't know if they're in heaven until you get there. Just trust God. And that's partially true. You trust God, but the rest of it just comes out of an erroneous application of the doctrine of election. As strong a Calvinist as John MacArthur is, even he states that all children will be in heaven if they die before the age of accountability. He doesn't apply that uh, election. He says all children, God knows in his omniscience that any child who dies before the age of accountability uh, won't have reached the age of accountability. So in MacArthur's view, all children who would die before the age of accountability are elect. So he just spreads that out. 
When we look at extending our understanding of this, of this teaching in Scripture, uh, there are two other aspects that are brought in. One has to do with the statements that are made by Jesus about children in the Gospels. And a central passage for this is a statement in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. And in this episode, you can turn with me uh, in your Bibles there to Mark chapter 10. Uh, I want to look at a couple of passages to remind you of one thing that I've, that I've taught on this from another passage. But we'll look at Mark chapter 10, first of all. In Mark chapter 10... Mark 10:13 Jesus there Mark writes this and there's some different episodes that are brought together here. And at this time he says Jesus uh, the little children are brought to Jesus then they brought little children to him and the word here is paideion in the Greek that's important it's not technon which is uh, can refer to a child from uh, a young age all the way up to maybe 12 or 13. This is a little child. So this is the age of from, from like infancy and just past infancy. So they brought these little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Don't bother Jesus with these little kids. Because the attitude, remember, of the, in the ancient world was that children should not be seen or heard. You know, keep them in the background. They are not significant. Their lives are not important. Uh, so there, the di- disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased at this and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, so he uses this as a teaching opportunity about faith related to the faith of a little child, And then what's significant is that last verse. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So there is value on little children. He is exhibiting the love of God for these little children who are not yet at an age uh, of accountability. Now, I need to define what I mean by an age of accountability. An age of accountability is not a specific time. It's not like seven or eight or nine. You can't put any specificity on it. But it is a time when a child reaches uh, an age where he understands God exists and he knows that God exists. And because he knows God exists, he has to determine whether or not he wants to respond to that positively or reject it. And he's old enough to understand the existence of God, to know that God exists, and be held accountable for how he responds to that knowledge. That's the age of accountability. Now, the age of accountability is going to change from family to family, person to person, and culture to culture. If you live in a home where every day, every week, the family uh, reads the Bible together, that they talk about Jesus among the family and that the kids go to church all the time and they're told Bible stories in nursery and all through those early years, then they're going to come to a consciousness of God's existence much earlier than someone who lives in some aboriginal tribe or is brought up in 
uh, the midst of an extremely profound Hindu culture in India. They won't hear about God as the God. They won't hear the name of Jesus or anything like that till they may be in their teens or maybe into their 20s. So it's going to vary from culture to culture. I had, uh, I knew a couple years and years ago that were very much involved with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And the wife taught Good News Clubs uh, at and uh, five-day clubs every week after school. And she would drag her two-year-old daughter with her to all of these Good News Clubs meetings. And little Ginger would sit there uh, on the on the floor and hear the, her mother tell the Bible story over and over again because she did several of these a week, so it's always the same story, but she would hear that over and over again. And at the end of the Good News Club, uh, as is typical, the she would give an invitation to the children that if they wanted to accept the free gift of eternal life, then um, they they could raise their hand and then she would talk to them about it to make sure they understood the gospel and make sure they understood what what it meant to believe in Jesus. So one day after she packs up her flannel graph and everything else, and she's in the car and they're driving home, little two-and-a-half-year-old Ginger says, Mommy, why don't you ever ask me if I want to believe in Jesus? Two-and-a-half. A little child like that constantly exposed to Bible stories and to God and hearing the gospel reaches God consciousness very early. But you have somebody who lives in a pagan environment, somebody who lives uh, in the in the uh, Amazon forest. It may be they may be fifteen or twenty years old before they they get to that point. So the age of accountability is going to vary from child to child. And that is related to but different from God consciousness. God consciousness is that point when they come to believe that, um, that there is a God. Now, the key passage for understanding both of these is in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, verse, starting in verse uh, 19, or let's start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from the heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, let me tell you, there's a couple of different ways that that's interpreted. When you look at it in the, in the Greek, you have to make a decision, but it's a subjective decision. It's not based on something objective in the, in the, uh, in the Greek. It's not based on case endings or forms or anything like that. And there are some who will take the verb there, and Calvinists usually do this, they take the verb there as a gnomic, and that means that this is a universal truth. And they would interpret that to mean all men always suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They have total inability. Nobody ever has even some sort of positive volition to know more about God. The other way to look at this is as a characteristic present, that this is something that generally happens among a lot of people, but not necessarily a universal truth applying to every single human being. And then he, Paul goes on to explain what that meant, and he says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. 
So the first thing he is saying is every human being is going to grow to a point where they understand that internally they know God exists. They And how do they know that? Because there's external evidence as well. Because what may be known about God is manifest in them. Internally, they come to a point to realize there's something greater than them. And it's usually triggered by something external, for God has shown it to them. When did God show them that he he existed? It is in the creation. It's a nonverbal general revelation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So it's understood that God exists by the things that he makes, and they know it. So they have an external witness uh, that it triggers this internal response, and they know that God exists. And at that point, they have a decision to make, that I want to know more about this God or I don't care. So if they want to know more about God, then God's going to give them more information. But that is the age of accountability, where they're accountable, they can be held responsible for this response to this general revelation. Uh, coming to that point, that point is called God consciousness. So Jesus is dealing with these children who are before the age of God consciousness, and he is blessing them. This shows that God places a value on these pre-God conscious children. John 3.18 tells us, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. So the person who does not believe, that indicates their volition. They choose not to believe. The others choose to believe. They believe on him, and the result is they're not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed, or he because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So to be able to believe in the name of the Son of God, you have to be able to comprehend and understand the gospel. But if you are either have a some sort of a brain damage or some sort of other uh, damage to your intellectual abilities, then you can't understand, comprehend the gospel. And so you will never reach that age of accountability, and God will automatically bring you to salvation when you die. If you are an infant or you're a child, you cannot understand the gospel. You cannot, you can't even, and, and with a seven-day-old child, you can't even speak. You can't understand. You have no vocabulary. You can't understand the gospel. And so God is going to, uh, God is going to save you. Same truth is articulated in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Well, a child before the age of accountability doesn't have the ability to comprehend the saving proposition to believe in Jesus so you'll be saved. So, the other line of argument, looking at those, look at Scripture, but the others, other lines of argument relate to the character of God. First of all, God's wisdom. God's wisdom is a function of his omniscience because God knows all the knowable. He is able to take into account everything necessary to bring the maximum number to salvation. 
And so God, in his wisdom, has implemented a plan of salvation that will bring the most glory to himself. And for that to deny salvation to those who can't even understand the basics of the gospel would not be wise. And so God makes provision because Christ died for all sin. Those who die before the age of accountability have had their sins paid for, and God in his grace saves them. Second area from his essence is because God is perfect love. God is going to do the best thing possible for the objects of his love. And for those, again, who are unable to understand the gospel, have not reached that age of accountability or comprehension, then God in his grace and his mercy is going to uh, provide for them. Psalm 103.8 says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So that is at the core of his character. So it would not be gracious to let those who can't believe, can't understand, have not lived long enough. And when we think about the history of the world, think about infant mortality. It hasn't been until the uh, 20th century where infant mortality in first world countries has really been overcome. You had a high percentage of children that would be born to a family. That's why they had 10, 12, 14 kids is because uh, they weren't sure how many would would reach four, five, six years of age. Many of them died very, very young due to disease, due to infections, things like that. And it wasn't that long ago, 100 years ago, when, when I was pastoring my first church down in Lamarck, there was a lady in the church who was about 78 or 80 years old at the time. This was So she was born right around the turn of the, turn of the, the last century, right around 1900. And she was the 16th of 18 children. Today we look at that and we go, oh, that's incredible. That was normal at that time. I think my grandparents were born in about that same, a little bit before that, and they both grew up in families with, with five or six children. Uh, my uh, great-great-grandmother uh, was buried out near uh, north of LaGrange, and right next to her is uh, one of her, I think her first or second child, who died before reaching, you know, a week's worth of age. That was so common. You can go through these old cemeteries and see how many, how many infants are buried there. Think about how many children, just of those who have died in infancy around the world, are going to be in heaven. You know, this is great comfort to people, and there will be many in heaven because of the Lord's mercy. Nahum talks about God's goodness. In Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Now, it just states that principle. The, the rest of the verse is derived from this initial principle that God is good. He's going to do the right thing. Zephaniah 3.5 says the Lord is righteous in her midst, he will do no unrighteousness. So his righteousness comes into play in providing salvation for those who can't believe. And Psalm 103.6 says, the Lord executes righteousness. Now, 
I want to go ahead and answer this last question. I've answered it before. I may have had more time the last time I attempted this. But this question comes up every now and then. What happens to children at the rapture? If I have a child and that child is six months old and I'm raptured, what happens to that child? Now, there are some people, Tim LaHaye was one. He taught that and in all of his uh, Left Behind books that all pre-age of accountability kids got automatically raptured. Bob Leitner, who became a good friend, I was his TA at Dallas Seminary back in the back in the 70s. He went to be with the Lord two or three years ago, and he wrote a wonderful book that deals that's called Safe in the Arms of Jesus. So if you know anybody who has a child who dies, that's a great book to give them. Safe in the Arms of Jesus, but he he has several questions that he answers at the end of the book, and one of those is what happens to children at the rapture, and I think he gives the wrong answer. He says they, they all get raptured. There are also a number of people who take the view that I take that children of believers are not necessarily raptured, are not going to be raptured uh, before the age of accountability. And let me give you the basic argument. The basic argument is expressed this way. The premise is, the major premise is that a child who dies before the age of accountability goes to heaven. Therefore, by analogy, a child who hasn't reached the age of accountability at the rapture will also go to heaven. What I see here is a tremendous logical fallacy. It is equating dying with your parents getting raptured. When a child dies, he is no longer, no longer will have the opportunity to hear or believe the gospel. If parents are raptured that, and that child survives, he's going to live for another at least seven years through the tribulation. Well, maybe not. He may get killed in, in some of the judgments in the tribulation. But if he survives, he's going to reach the age of accountability, and he'll hear the gospel during the tribulation period. So this is comparing apples and oranges. They're not the, the, the same thing. It's not the same situation, and that's the problem. It is it illegitimately equates dying with the rapture. At the rapture, the child will continue to live and have opportunities to believe. Think about the second coming. It's the end of the, it's the, end of the tribulation. You are going to have Jesus warned that when you see this sign, this the, the sign of the Antichrist, the abomination of, de, uh, of, of uh, the abomination of desolation, he said, "Flee to the hills, woe to the woman who is pregnant." Okay, so they're going to be pregnant women three and a half years into the tribulation, and they're going to flee, and then they're going to give birth. And there are others who are going to get pregnant during that time as they're in hiding, and they're going to give birth. And those children that are born then are going to be three years or younger, and they're not, I don't believe they will reach the age of accountability. Maybe some of them, but not all of them. So Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back, and all the unbelievers are taken off the earth. But these infants haven't reached an age of accountability yet. So are they going to go into the kingdom? Yes. They'll go into the kingdom. Will they have a resurrection body? No. 
let's say their parents were killed during the second half of the tribulation, they're martyred, and these kids survived, they're going to go into the kingdom, but not in resurrection bodies. They're still going to have to reach the age of accountability and believe in Jesus. And we know from the fact that there's a rebellion against Jesus at the end of the thousand years that there are going to be a lot of kids born during the, tribula- during the millennial kingdom that reject the gospel and reject Jesus. So a child at the time of the rapture is martyred. Let me give you another illustration. Some of you like to read history. Some of you like to read the history of the American West. You know what percentage of Americans that followed Horace Greeley's advice and went west, young man, go west, were were believers? I'm guessing well north of 50% were, were believers just because there were so many believers in this country. So you're on a wagon train. Remember the old television show, Wagon Train? You're on a wagon train, and you're winding your way towards the Black Hills in, uh, in the Dakotas, and all of a sudden you're hit by um, an Indian ambush, and everybody's killed except five babies. Those five babies are taken to g- grow up with the, with the Indians, and they're taught the paganism of the Indians, and they're taught all of the, all of the demonism that, that was vital to all of the religious worship that the uh, American Indian tribes had. You can't, you know, how does that differ from a child who is abandoned, as it were, by parents who are raptured and this little baby is left and to be brought up in a world of paganism? You, you think of the Islamic hordes that swept across North Africa and swept across Turkey and swept across North Africa and killed Christians left and right and took their babies and reared them as Muslims. That's all analogous. You think about the Assyrians that came through the northern kingdom in, in, in the scripture and slaughtered parents who are, could have been believers, and yet their children were left alive and were then deported somewhere and were probably adopted and reared by some pagan Assyrian family. Same thing happened in the Babylonian invasions. History is replete with examples of disaster after disaster after disaster where Christian parents were killed and their infant babies were left to be reared by pagans. There's nothing in God's character in Scripture or in history to indicate that because parents, Christian, an infant has Christian parents, that if they die, that child automatically gets saved. And that's what the argument is. Those children of parents who are raptured are going to grow up in the tribulation period. It's a horrible time. But we know from Scripture that millions of people are going to be saved during the tribulation. It is You have all these big numbers all the way through Revelation. You have uh, the 144,000. You have the 200 million demons. 200 million is a pretty big number. But in, in Revelation chapter 7, there, John sees this heavenly vision of all of these resurre- all of these people in heaven who are wearing white robes who were martyred on the earth, and he says, it's without number. That means it's more than 200 million. That's how many get saved in the tribulation. So this idea that it's a horrible thing to think about. It's a horrible thing to think that if the rapture comes, then your 
child is going to be left to survive. Well, if it's an infant, probably won't survive a week. It will starve to death or something, automatically go to heaven. Uh, People suffer. We live in America, we live in such a prosperity bubble that we have forgotten what it is like for most families throughout all of history to suffer all kinds of problems. And there's no guarantee. So, no, I, I think that there's a huge, huge logical flaw in, in, that, in, that, in that argument. And I always get somebody who wants to argue about it, and I don't argue about it. It is what it is. So that is the starting point here of first thing. Second thing that comes up is that we have to understand what the Bible says about uh, when does this life begin? I think it's very important to recognize that God did not discipline David by giving Bathsheba a miscarriage. He had to wait until she gave birth to that baby boy before he could bring the discipline. And I think that's important. We'll see the significance of that when we come back over the next couple of weeks. I hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving, that you get the opportunity to witness to some family members and that it is a great time to rejoice in all that God has provided for us and given us. So let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful we live in this nation. We're thankful for the heritage that is bequeathed to us by our by those original colonists who came in the 1600s, the Puritans and the Pilgrims, the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, all that came here seeking Uh, freedom to worship you according to what the Bible says. We're thankful for the fact that they probed the scriptures deeply to understand what they taught and that their understanding impacted their, the way they thought society should function on the basis of genuine freedom. That all of that came together to give us just a wonderful form of government that's based on a republic and based on individual freedoms and realizing that these freedoms are given to us by you and not by the government. Father, we thank you for the way in which we are prospered in this nation and that we have so much and to recognize that all of this comes from your hand. And as it is so profoundly threatened today by people who hate you, who hate the Bible, who hate Christians, who hate the truth and have perverted the truth and are calling uh, good evil and evil good. We pray that you might protect us, raise up leaders, raise up men and women of God, men and women of the scriptures who are going to stand firm, uh, stand in the gap, and lead as leadership should, as there should be leadership in this nation. We pray for our president. We pray for his safety. We pray for wise counselors to surround him, and often they're, they're fools and heretics. But we pray that he might learn to listen to wise counsel. And we pray that you would continue to protect us from the evil people who would seek to destroy our freedoms and to destroy the impact of Christianity in the world. And, Father, we pray for us that we might stand firm in our faith And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.